All right. Well, if you've got your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to take it. And the um, first place that I'm going to ask you to turn to is the book of Acts, chapter 2. But we're going to kind of take the long way to get there. I just have a confession to make. I love Easter. Easter is like the Super Bowl of all Sundays, right? It is, it is the one day set apart the whole year that the whole American calendar is supposed to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, right? We get off work for Easter. America still recognizes Easter as a really big deal and uh, could not be more excited. It's my favorite time to preach. And we're going to do something a little bit different. There's a funny story, actually. This is, is going to be a, a prop for an illustration I'm getting ready to, to walk you through before we jump into the text. We were eating at the breakfast this morning and somebody said, hey, do you need any help taking that table down before the service starts? And I thought, oh, mercy, please don't take my prop down before the service starts. That'd be horrible. And so uh, I'm just thankful this morning that it's still here, that nobody did me any favors of taking it down for me. But um, have you ever been, actually, before we get started, let's open with another word of prayer. Lord, we thank you again for your son. We thank you for sending him to this earth. Lord, we thank you that the grave couldn't hold him. And Lord, we thank you that he went to the cross on our behalf. Lord, I pray that you would speak to your people this morning. Father, I pray that you would work in hearts and lives. And Lord, I pray that each of us would leave here being more like you. And Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day they enter into a relationship with you. And so at this time, Lord, please feed your people. Lord, please use me to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'll tell you what we have here. Uh, We have a bunch of ancient writings. Any of you guys take uh, philosophy classes in college? Any of you guys have to read books that when you were reading the book, you thought, boy, I hope I never have to read this book again, right? You ever done that? And so what I want you to see is I've got a handful of books here, and I'm going to tell you about each of them very briefly, and then I'm going to tell you some things about the ancient manuscripts that we have of these books. And so critics often like to look at the Bible and they like to say that we don't know what the original meaning of the scriptures are because it's been revised so many times. It's been changed so many times over the years. You ever heard things like that before? You watch a TV program and they say, you know, we just don't know what the original text is. Well, I want to start out by telling you about this. This is a book by a man named Tacitus. If you were here uh, a couple months ago, I went through a sermon series on what it meant to be a Christian, and I quoted from a guy named Tacitus. It was out of this book. He's the one who told us that the word Christian was only used uh, as a negative way in the early church, okay? This book by Tacitus, written in 100 AD, okay? The first copies that we have of this book don't show up till 800 years later. So this book's written in 100 AD. We don't have any of the first copies of this book until 800, 800 years later. And do you know how many copies of this book we have 800 years later, two, we have two copies of this book by Tacitus and everybody takes this book, critics and scholars alike, take this book as absolute fact. There's another book here called the dialogues of Plato. Any of you guys ever wanted to poke yourself in the eye when you had to read this in college? If there's any of you that really enjoyed it, I just got in trouble with you. But uh, tough book to read, Plato. Nobody questions whether or not we have the original meaning of what Plato wrote in any of his books. Right? Nobody questions it. Do you know that this book was written in 350 BC and we don't have the first copies of what Plato wrote until 1250 years after he wrote them? And do you know how many copies of Plato's works we have? Seven. We have seven copies of Plato's works and nobody questions the authenticity of what Plato wrote 1200 years after he wrote it. The next one over here 
is a book called The Histories by Herodotus. It's a book that um, he was a historian. He goes back and he recounts all sorts of things during his life. This book written right around 430 BC, and we don't have any copies that show up until 1300 years after Herodotus writes the original works. 1300 year gap between when Herodotus lives and when he writes his work. Excuse me, 1,300 years between when he lives and writes his work till the first copies show up. And when we say the first copies show up, we're talking about before the time of the printing press. And see, these are original manuscripts. And there's only nine of them. How many of you guys read Herodotus in college and it was just taken as absolute fact? You knew that we only had... Oh, so none of you. We'll just move on. Cool. All right, Caesar's Gallic Wars. You ever heard of Caesar and the Gallic Wars? Caesar writes his Gallic Wars... And we only have 10 copies of what he wrote, right? 10 copies. He writes the Gallic Wars, 50 BC, and they don't show up until 950 years after he writes them. And we take Caesar's Gallic Wars as absolute history. And there's only 10 copies. So critics and scholars take these works as absolute fact. We've got two copies, we've got six copies, nine copies, and 10 copies. But when we come to the Greek New Testament... Critics and scholars want to say that this book has been changed over the years so many times, and we don't know what the original text said. And I just want you to know that we have... We have 6,000 copies of the Greek New Testament. 6,000 copies. Don't clap yet. It gets better. The Greek New Testament was written around the turn of the century, throughout 35 to 55, 95 AD. The first copies show up within 50 years of when it was originally written. Only a 50-year gap. There's a 1,300-year gap between some of these books. And there's 6,000 copies. Just so you know, this is only about 1,000 peanuts, okay? Actually, not 1,000. This is about 2,000 peanuts, right? So it's not even 6,000. So the Greek New Testament, 6,000 copies within 50 years. If you want to take it even further... There's 20,000 copies in Latin, Coptic, and Armenian, all within 50 years of its original writing. This is only about 6,000 peanuts in total. And so, brothers and sisters, what I want you to see is that critics and scholars take these works of art as absolute right, and we only have a few copies. We have 26,000 copies of this that predate the printing press very close to the time of when it was originally written. And so I would say that when you look at all what the critics and scholars have to say about these books and the criticism that they give this book, I would say that the argument is just nuts, right? (laughs) So what I want you to see, what I want you to see for the rest of this message is I want you to see what the story of this book is. And I want you to see how important it is that we have 26,000 copies of a book that has the greatest message that's ever been told in the history of the world. And so I said 26,000 copies 
of the New Testament, right? You've got tons of copies of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is going to point you to the New Testament. So if you were to have your Bible, you're going to stay in the book of Acts. But if you started out reading it, you would read that God created the heavens and the earth. And in six days, he created everything that you've ever seen. He creates man, woman, Adam, Eve, and he puts them all in the garden, right? When Adam and Eve sin, they're separated from God. And in Genesis chapter 315, we have a promise in the Old Testament. And this kind of shapes the rest of the scriptures. The seed of a woman is going to come and he's going to crush the head of Satan. And so you find that there's a problem in Genesis 3, and that's that man has sinned. Satan and sin have to be dealt with. The Old Testament, the rest of it, is looking forward to that Messiah who's going to crush the head of Satan. This is the Old Testament looking forward to the New Testament. Then if you keep going on to Genesis chapter 22, you have a man by the name of Abraham. God chooses a man named Abraham, and through Abraham, God's going to draw the nations of the world back to himself and through through Abraham, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so you can figure that this Messiah, who's going to crush the head of Satan, is going to come through Abraham. If you keep reading through the book of Psalms, you find that there's a righteous man who's going to suffer on behalf of other people out of Psalm chapter 22. Keep reading through the Old Testament. You get to places like Isaiah chapter 53 and you have this suffering servant figure who's going to come and he's going to suffer on behalf of the people and then he's going to die for them. You keep reading through the Old Testament and you find all sorts of other scriptures that are pointing to this Messiah figure. And then the one of the biggest prophecies that you can't get away from is actually in the book of Daniel. Listen to this. This is in Daniel chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it for the sake of time. This is Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks. And so Daniel is prophesying. And you find that there's going to be seven seventy sevens. So this equals out to 490. So there's going to be 490 years between when Daniel is giving this prophecy until the Messiah is going to be killed for the iniquity of mankind. And then you fast forward 490 years and you get to the death of Jesus Christ. And that brings us over into the New Testament. And as you get into the New Testament, you've got these 26,000 copies all that try to get this same story across, right? This story that is more fact than any of these other books. This story that is the most provable fact in the ancient world because you have so many eyewitnesses all testifying to the exact same thing. What I didn't tell you is that critics and scholars will often say that there's so many variances between all of these texts that you can't really know what the Bible says. And this is just critics trying to take the biggest evidence for the scriptures and make it a liability when it's not. You see, even the most critical scholar who's an agnostic, his name's Bart Ehrman, he even says when you look at all the variants between the different texts, it doesn't change the message, the Christian message at all in any meaningful way. And because we have so many copies of the text, we can compare and contrast them to each other. And keep in mind that when we talk about differences, you're talking about pieces of paper. You're not even talking about pieces of paper. You're talking about 
leather scrolls that were written on with feather dipped in ink. And so when we talk about variances, oftentimes we're talking about an ink dot here. And we're talking about when they rolled up a scroll before it was dry and the ink spread in different places. And so we're talking about variances that are just so minute, it's not even funny. And so I want to tell you that the Old Testament is pointing to the Messiah of the New Testament. And the whole New Testament is trying to get this story across to you. Listen to this. If you look in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to stay in the book of Acts. But if you look in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of those gospels have this same story by Jesus. Jesus sits his disciples down and he says, listen, gang, it's got to happen this way. I've got to die. And then three days later, I'm going to be raised from the dead. Each of the gospels have this account in it. And so Jesus wants to get across in each of these gospels that he has to die. So Jesus doesn't die by accident. It has to happen this way. They didn't sneak up on Jesus. They didn't pull one over on Jesus. The the resurrection wasn't plan B, right? The death of Jesus on the cross, the resurrection was always plan A. Each of the gospels, Jesus tells his followers, I've got to die so that on the third day I can be raised. Then Peter stands up. You're in Acts chapter 2. This is Acts chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 22. It says this. Men of Israel, listen to these words. This is Peter preaching after Jesus has been raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit has come and dwelt on his people. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man... Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter tells the people flat out, it was impossible for death to hold Jesus. You killed him because you're mean, nasty, ugly people, but it was impossible for him to stay dead because God had bigger plans for him. You flip over maybe a few pages to the book of 1 Corinthians. I invite you to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to start in the middle of verse 54. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, if you're here and you're a follower of Christ and you woke up this morning and you your life is just always about doing the work of Jesus, I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to keep toiling and keep working and keep striving to serve the Lord because the scriptures tell you that your toil is not in vain. You serve a Savior who died on a cross for your sins and for my sins. And then he beat death in raising from the dead so that he could be the first fruits of the dead so that when you die, he can give you eternal life with him in heaven. And I just want to say, keep up the good work. 
I want to say keep striving, keep following, no matter what it's costing you to follow Jesus on a daily basis. Keep going and pressing forward because the scriptures tell us that your work and your toil is not in vain. You can rest assured more than any other fact that's been written down in any book that you serve a Savior who rose from the dead and your soul can be trusted with him as well. You are in very good hands. For anyone here who maybe isn't a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to tell you, I heard so much talk on the radio this week about Good Friday and everybody trying to figure out why Good Friday is called Good Friday. Listen to this. This is why it's Good Friday. It's good for you and it's good for me. It was good for Jesus too. No matter what you've done in your entire life, no matter where you came from, no matter what your backstory is, no matter where you're planning on going when you leave here, if you've sinned one time, one time, you've fallen short of God's standard. And the punishment that you deserve is eternal separation from God, just like Adam and Eve got. That's what you deserve. Good Friday is good because Jesus went to a cross that you and I deserved to die on. And when we should have been nailed to it, he stepped in and offered his body as a substitute for you and I. And it's good because that one death is efficient for the whole world if they'll put their faith in him to forgive them of their sin. That is why it's Good Friday. Because God's death is effective for anyone who will call out to him and ask them to save them of their sins. You, you all know the scripture, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's one that we quote so frequently. But I want to read to you the last part. Because I, I don't want you to make the mistake to walk out of here and think, you know, I've done that. I did that a long time ago. I'm done. I've got my ticket punched. I'm good to go. I want you to read the, the end part of John chapter 3. You, know, you can turn there if you want to, but you don't have to. You're welcome to look later. This is John chapter 3, verse 36. Listen to this. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Man, that is good news. Right? That is really good news. That's, you have eternal life because your sins have been forgiven as a result of Friday and Jesus' death on the cross. And your eternal life and death was defeated when Jesus picked up his body and got up out of the grave. And so, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Listen to the last part of the verse. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I just want to share with you this Easter morning that John 3.16 rolls off the tongue. But it's only evident that you believe in Jesus Christ if you're able to joyfully obey the commands that he gives us. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And I just want us to take a, a brief look at our life this Easter morning as we celebrate the resurrection. I just want us to look at our life and ask ourselves, are we people who can joyfully obey the commands because we believe with our whole heart that Jesus died for our sins and then he rose from the dead so that we can have eternal life? And the reality is, is that if you can't joyfully obey Jesus, you don't know Jesus. Because I'm telling you, if you knew the Jesus I knew, 
And if you knew the things that the man standing in front of you has been forgiven of and how grateful he is to be washed clean and that one day I can stand before the Lord and be guilt free because of what Jesus paid my penalty. Let me tell you, there is nothing that the Lord would ask of me that I wouldn't joyfully do and jump in with both feet. And so, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that if you're here. And you've put your faith in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. You've been saved. You've been washed clean. I want you to know that if you're here and you can't joyfully obey Jesus, then you might just walk out of here as lost as you came in. But the good news is, is that if you'll put your faith in him, he'll save you right here and now the same way he saved me right here and now years ago. And so I want you guys to know that I love you. Couldn't be more excited to see you and your families here. Couldn't be more excited that we have absolute proof that this New Testament is exactly what Jesus wants us to have. And that you can have full faith and confidence, not just a a faith that people talk about that's fleeting, but you can know for a fact that this resurrection of Jesus Christ is historically accurate, handed down exactly the way God wants to have us. Let me tell you, it is absolutely stupendous. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we cannot thank you enough for going to the cross on our behalf. Lord, we can't thank you enough for paying for our sin. Lord, we can't thank you enough for not staying dead. But Lord, you laid your life down willingly and then you willingly picked it up. Father, you said that no one could take your life. And that if you wanted to lay it down, you would. And that when you wanted to pick it up, you would. So, Father, we are thankful that we serve a Savior that is capable of raising from the dead. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they reach out to you in faith. Lord, that they put their faith in that you died for them on the cross and that you rose from the dead so that they could have eternal life. Lord, I pray that they would know that there is nothing they've ever done and no road they've ever walked too far that they can't turn and get right with you. God, we love you and we thank you for what you're doing amongst us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do things a little bit different. I'm going to ask you to stay seated for our hymn of invitation. Actually, why not? Let's stand up for a hymn of invitation. And I'm going to be down front. The choir is going to sing the song. There's not going to be anything for you to sing. But I'm going to ask that you stand just in case anyone wants to respond and ask Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior. That way they don't have to get up with everyone sitting down. But if you'd like to know more about Jesus, I would love to share more with you while the choir sings. But if you would, stand for our hymn of invitation. Again, it was good to see you today. Hope you have a fantastic rest of your weekend. I'm going to ask Dr. Tarkington if you would close us with a word of prayer.